How did a small hot dog chain handle a sudden rush of customers in its drive-thrus after the pandemic? Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with J.R. Gallardi, the CEO of the Gallardi Group, parent company of Wiener Schnitzel, Tasty Freeze, and Hamburger Stand. JR became CEO earlier this year, but has grown up with the brand, which was founded by his father and later run by his mother after he passed away. JR talks about taking over a family business, including some of the pressures, challenges, and opportunities that presents. JR talks about what he plans to do with the brand, including selling more of its products inside grocery stores and other retailers. We talk a lot about the state of the overall business, including labor issues, supply chain concerns, franchising, and expansion strategies. He also talks about how much demand there was for the drive through after the pandemic, the challenges that presented, and what the company did about it. Interesting conversation this week with the CEO of Wiener Schnitzel, so please have a listen. Okay, I am here with J.R. Gallardi. J.R., welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I hear you got a new job. Tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, I did. So I got promoted from president of Gallardi I was president COO of Gallardi Group for about the past four years, and February 1st, took over the position of CEO, mm-hmm. and, as well as president. Yeah, and you, you know, your main holding is Wiener Schnitzel, yes, and yeah. uh, how are things going with, uh, with that brand? Yeah, Wiener Schnitzel is definitely our main holding, as you said. You know, we have three brands, Wiener Schnitzel, Hamburger Stand, Tasty Freeze, but Wiener Schnitzel is our bread and butter. Things are going unbelievable, you know. The pandemic created this opportunity for us just to get higher sales than we've ever seen uh, in the past two years. You know, we went on this trajectory that we didn't expect in March of 2020. Um, we were anticipating to be down 30%, really? kind of expected to float around there. And then um, there was a shift in, in the economy when the government checks came out and we skyrocketed and just held that and they're still holding strong. Really? So uh, where are you guys at over uh, compared with 2019 right now? Let's see. We'd probably be about, I'd say around 24% over 2019, Mm -hmm. give or take. Yeah. We're about, you know, 50% over March of 2020 because that's when everything kind of shut down. Yeah. You noticed when shelter in place mandates were rolling out, you would see a 15 to 30% drop in each market as those mandates went in place. And so that was our all time low point come April, things started to pick back up, but mm-hmm. yeah. So, so March we had extremely low numbers to go over. Yeah. You guys' drive-through was pretty busy, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we basically shut down all, all dining rooms just due to mandates and things like that, as well as short staffing. And so a, when traditionally our concept was about a 65, 35 split drive through to dining room. Now we're 99.9 drive through. And then if you factor in third party delivery, that equates for about 10%, you know, so figure like a 90, 10 split mm-hmm. there. You still have, I mean, you basically still all drive through outside of delivery. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we're, we're working towards opening up most of the dining rooms. Um, the reason that any of them would be closed right now is not due to, any sort of COVID regulations, it would be for short staffing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's getting better, but it's still a really tough environment out there to find kind of minimum wage employees. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to, did did the level of drive-through sales, I mean, obviously that kind of catch you off guard. I mean, did it surprise you at all? 
It surprised me in the fact that we were able to run such high volumes through one avenue. You know, normally with with the split, you could kind of separate the sales a little. It creates a little bit of a calming effect in the in the restaurant because you have two different avenues of people coming in. Here, I mean, we're doing all time volumes just through the drive through with shorter staff than we've ever had. So it created this. Mm-hmm. The good thing is that sales were really good, but that also created more challenges than we've ever faced, you know, including all the distribution issues I mean, staffing, the ability. Typically, our restaurants are much smaller because they were built so long ago. They were built for volumes in the, you know, six, seven hundred thousand range. And now we're averaging 1.2, 1.4 million per location. So just storing enough items mm-hmm. and then to facilitate that volume is tough. Yeah. You ever have any issues like with uh, like sometimes they, we're seeing a lot more reports like where the drive through lines are getting so long at some of these restaurants where you're having some conflicts with traffic or with neighbors, any issues like that? And how do you deal with it? We've definitely had those issues, especially in our A-frame locations, because mm-hmm. the stack is typically, you know, it could be a four or five car stack if you're lucky, sometimes a two or three car stack. And so the overflow of that would be out into the street. during the thick of everything the past couple of years, everyone was very understanding, you know, um, but we definitely have seen some issues and had the police have been called to redirect traffic, things like that. It, everything's starting to balance itself out now though, mm-hmm. you know, with having 60 year old buildings, there's a lot less people in those areas, a lot less people driving the whole, you know, so we weren't prepared, but we're making right. plans to, mm-hmm. to better facilitate that in the future. Yeah. You guys doing anything in terms of uh, like, are you, are you kind of adapting your design or anything like that to sort of meet this sort of future, you know, where, where there's a lot more drive through or do you, do you anticipate dining to eventually come back? I think people are anxious to come back in and sit down. And we've noticed that in the areas we have opened up the dining rooms, I think drive through will still remain the majority and even more so than it was 2019. Uh, and then with third-party delivery and pickup and things like that, I still think drive-through will be the dominant way. And we are looking at potentially implementing a double drive-through system down the line. The problem with that is the lot size and cost of construction is already at an all-time high. So, you know, with the business model, you want to maintain above a one-to-one ratio mm-hmm. on your construction to AUV. And so adding to that, you know, could be a challenge, but if we can get get the construction costs down and the volumes up, then we're definitely looking at it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Wienerschitz was a pretty interesting history. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. Yeah. It was founded in 1961 by my father. He, um, you know, he got <laughs> thrown out of college in Missouri for reasons he never really discussed with me, but uh, <laughs> hopped a Greyhound bus from Missouri to California, went around looking for a job, saw a guy hosing down a parking lot. Uh, went up, asked him for a job. That guy ended up being Glenn Bell. And that parking lot was the Taco Tia, the very first Taco Bell. And so my father got a job there, worked for Glenn for a number of years, got an opportunity to open his own place, decided he didn't want to compete with his friend in tacos. You know, hamburgers were kind of coming up in the QSR industry. So he decided to do hot dogs because no one was doing it. Funny enough, you know, Glenn Bell's wife actually named Wiener Schnitzel. He was at their house at a dinner party and he couldn't think of a name. 
you know, he wanted something that sticks out and you drive down the street and you see a million different signs every day. His name was John. If you have John's hot dogs, you're going to drive right past that and forget Mm -hmm. it. So he couldn't come up with anything. And Glenn's wife was flipping through a cookbook and she saw a recipe for uh, wiener schnitzel, which is, you know, an Austrian dish. It's like pounded breaded meat. And she's like, how about wiener schnitzel? And he's like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) But then he couldn't stop thinking about it. He's like, well, wieners, hot dogs. It's kind of funny. It's a name most people probably can't pronounce on their first go, but you won't forget it. And so Mm -hmm. that's how it was born. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you've now you've grown up with the brand, haven't you? I have. Yeah. Yeah. My first first real job um, outside of being a paper boy and painting fences was at a wiener stencil when I was 13 years old in Newport Beach off Jamboree or store 390. I worked all the positions from janitorial to bagger to fry cook to drive through. Uh, we had a beer tap at mm-hmm. that store at the time. We were testing selling beer. So learned how to pour a mean beer about 13 years old, which, you know, oh, I'm sure that's not super good. legal, but yeah. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. So now you were, but you were kind of running the day-to-day operations for a while before you became CEO, didn't you? Or am I? Off? I was, yeah. I was uh, president and COO for the past four years and mm-hmm. was basically running. Yeah. All day to day. Mm-hmm. And then, so the, the step into CEO isn't a huge change. It's more of a title than responsibility. However, there are some some bigger budgetary issues and things that I need to be more aware of. And it feels good to have total control, you know, mm-hmm. and not have to report up. Mm-hmm. What's it like? I mean, just tell us a little bit about what is it like to, to step in as leadership of a family brand? I mean, is there any kind of pressure on you to, you know, sort of live up to, you know, live up to your predecessors or anything like that? Or how, do, how, is, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely pressure. My family lives off the brand. I'm the only one that works in the company. Hmm. And so to maintain, you know, for their sake, as well as preserve my father's legacy is a, is a, it's a, it was more pressure in the beginning, especially when he passed away in 2013. Uh, I've gotten used to it now and I'm not necessarily feeling a ton of pressure as CEO, more just humility and honor to be able to continue his legacy. You know, as a little kid, it was always my dream to run the family business, even though I didn't really know what that meant. And then as I grew older, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it or not, but then, you know, life kind of forced my hand and I had to make a decision and chose the path of family business and I couldn't be happier. I love my job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the labor challenges that you're, you're, you're dealing with. What the, how, how are those like right now? Yeah, like I said, it's it's getting a little better. It's still incredibly difficult, you know, and being that we're 100% franchised, we don't mm-hmm. have a ton of control over store level issues and employees. So we're seeing employees will show up for a week and then leave and collect their unemployment or, you know, where depending on where you're at in the country, they'll want to start at three, four dollars over minimum wage because the Chick-fil-A down the street is paying that, right? And, you know, Chick-fil-A's volumes are about double what we're at. And so they're able to pay higher wages. We're also seeing people who, uh, you know, it's it's like the the power dynamic has shifted from the employer to the employee, Mm -hmm. right? So you're so desperate to have warm bodies in the business at this point that you're willing to put up with a lot of grief Mm -hmm. from they want a mental health day, or they just don't show up, but you don't want to fire them or 
they're a little disrespectful and don't get me wrong. There's, we have some great employees out there. I'm just generalizing mm-hmm. over some sure. of the difficulties we're having right now, but I'm hoping that it'll balance out and switch, you know, minimum wage never goes down, but at least maybe it'll settle a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, how, um, how are you working with your franchisees on this issue? Yeah, we've implemented programs, uh, different hiring services. You know, we talk to them about doing some sort of bonus program or profit sharing after hitting X amount of dollars per day or throwing them pizza parties, reward systems. We go out into the field and do mystery shops for prizes. So like we had some giveaways for the Super Bowl and we're doing some now. We just talk to them about one, incentivizing, and two, showing a personal connection with them, right? A lot of people just want to know that you care right? Um, and that you're there to help out. So, mm-hmm. but again, it's tough and it's real tough. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to invest in crypto and be web designers or, you know, stay home and not come mm-hmm. into work. And I, I mean, I get it, it's, but at the same time, the less people work, the faster this robot world is going to come into play you know businesses are going to keep running and if i'm a big advocate of using people as opposed to technology and robots you know i Mm -hmm. want to give people jobs but at the same time if you have a business to run and people don't want to work we're going to have to substitute somehow yeah yeah are you are you testing anything like that any robots uh no not necessarily robots you know we're testing we're we're doing mobile ordering and Mm third-party delivery like i mentioned and things like that i don't think for the cost at this point, the robotics I've seen for QSR aren't really there. Mm-hmm. We can never, based off our size alone, we can't be industry leaders in those type of areas. Uh, it's just too expensive to be the first. We have to wait usually for it to get vetted out and then adopt it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Is um, um, So... What t- tell me a little bit about your supply chain challenges? How are things going on that front? You know, every day is a new adventure. Yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy. First, it was COVID. Now, issues overseas having to do with the Ukraine affecting our different oils, things, things of that nature. Things you don't really think about at the time that mm-hmm. can now affect you. You know. We're lucky that I have an amazing purchasing department who is on top of it and works diligently. Over the past couple of years, you would go around even to Starbucks and they'd be out of something or, you know, I think Wendy's ran out of hamburger patties, right? (laughs) Like major issues. And we've been lucky enough that our partners, as well as my purchasing department, have been able to navigate through that where we may have had to substitute, but we've never had to put a sign up that says we're out of anything. Mm -hmm. So we've been very, very fortunate. Um, in our ability to adapt. And I think a lot of that has to do with size. Yeah. You know, we can pivot easily. Mm-hmm. How do you, yeah. how are you able to pivot? What kind of things have you done? You know, things like right now we're having an issue with our French fry supplier um, mm-hmm. based off the weather last year, the potato crop wasn't where it should be. And so there's mm-hmm. a shortage. And so we're going to have to source a secondary supplier, even though the fry isn't to our exact spec, we brought it in because of our size, the decisions get made very quickly. You know, it doesn't have to go through this long process. So we brought in this alternate supplier for a minority percentage of our restaurant. We went to a restaurant, we cooked it, we tasted it, we held it, we checked it, and then we implemented it, right? So we're ready to go. It takes a couple of days to make a decision like that as opposed to a longer process. And so because of that, we're able mm-hmm. to navigate through these supply chain issues rather quickly. Right, right. 
So the cost must be going up quite a bit. I must be putting some real pressure on your franchisees right now. Yeah. 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 We're lucky that sales have been so high because we live and die by our food cost. Um, We have the lowest in the industry. You know, our food cost teeters in the low twenties, low to mid twenties, which for QSR is, is pretty low. Absorbing some of those costs is without having to raise prices. uh, We're able to do that, but it's definitely, especially with fuel search, charges and different product increases you know nobody most most businesses don't want to absorb it they pass it through with price increases and so we're we're navigating that it's a daily challenge we're doing our best not to raise prices and still still maintain a decent margin yeah yeah how, how are you able to keep your food why are your food costs so low what's the deal with that uh it's just the nature of our, our business. You know, it's mm-hmm. the contracts we've negotiated as well as our quantities in an industry where, for example, retail hot dogs are a much bigger business than QSR hot dogs, right? And so we're the world's largest hot dog chain from that perspective. And hot dogs overall have a lower cost than a hamburger patty. And the majority of our sales come from that product as well as corn dogs and fries. And so, and also we're cognizant of our food cost when, rolling LTOs and things like that. And we make sure that we balance it out with a, with a, a value price, but still in a margin driven food cost for our franchisees. Right. Right. Let's talk a little bit about where you see things going and for, for Wiener Schnitzel, what's, uh, what yeah. are your plans as a CEO now that you're in charge, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. Right. So I see uh, growth in a, in a couple different avenues, right. And that would be a same store sales increases, which comes down mm-hmm. to marketing and operational efficiencies, equipment, things like that. So there's a focus over there as well as, you know, playing with digital and those type of areas. The rest, the, the second one is growth domestic. Mm-hmm. And also we started an international division. Really? So we're working both there. We just signed a couple multi-unit deals kind of in the mid West South area. So you know, you have your Arkansas and Louisiana, Houston, places like that are all signing 10 to 20 unit deals with relatively aggressive development schedules. So we're working at that. Our biggest problem there is being able to open stores fast enough. Really? You know, with construction's a little slower, permitting is kind of an issue. So we're exploring right now uh, modular. We haven't rolled any out, but we're looking at it. And if we can combine franchisees, to agree to one modular vendor, I think we can lower cost of construction and they can build them ahead of time and warehouse them. And then when the site work is done and the permits are through, mm-hmm. they come in and that building's up in like a month. Really? So it may not save you a ton of money, but it save you time, which means you're making money faster, right? So mm-hmm. if we can figure out a program with a modular company to, uh, to expedite our, our opening timelines, I think that'll help us expand rather quickly and then on an international basis, we've noticed a huge desire for one Wiener Stencil, but also Hamburger Stand, our second brand, mm-hmm. uh, in an international marketplace. So we're in talks with about six or seven different countries seriously right now, and casually with about seventeen. Mm. Um, it looks like we'll have at least one or two agreements signed and working towards an opening by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third would be potential licensing plays, right? Like a which we haven't dove into, but I think there is, there is a market for retail Wiener Central products like corn dogs or artillery or a pack of hot mm-hmm. dogs, things like that. 
So I think there's a lot of avenues of growth for the business. It's just a matter of nailing it down and executing. Mm -hmm. You got pretty, uh, how's your demand from, from franchisees on the domestic front? It's the demand is high. Um, it's like, it's the problem with it is the majority of our restaurants are in California. And I'm sure, as you well know, building in California is logistically kind of a nightmare when it comes Mm -hmm. to depending on the county you're in, I guess, but overall, and it's also incredibly expensive. So we do see a drive. There are franchisees expanding, but it's a slower process, especially with the permitting issues Mm -hmm. in California. Um, But yeah, and I think if we can get this modular or something along those lines figured out, that Mm -hmm. will again entice franchisees. We see some conversions coming through. Most people don't want to build brand new freestanding locations in California. They want to do conversions or end cap units, which is understandable, you know? Right, right. It's very difficult to get um it's uh difficult obviously as you mentioned to get things built in california and, yeah you know, yeah it is uh, yeah they're not super business friendly <laughs> no no um and uh uh it, it just seems in fact i mean i've been um looking at that uh by the time most people listen to this all of this story will be published i was looking at that um chick-fil-a in santa barbara yeah, uh, that is under threat for losing, you know, its drive-through uh, yeah. to uh, public nuisance. Now that's been tabled for a couple of months. So the, essentially, Chick Fil A won the the debate. But the, the idea that you know, uh, you know that 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 could happen, it just sort of illustrates how difficult that market can really be. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's not that many drive through locations in that community. And now they want to close one because it backs up onto the, you know, and yeah. it was just, uh, it, it's got to be just insane to get anything done there. It's really tough to get things done. And like you said, the supply of drive through locations versus the mm-hmm. demand for drive through locations, especially in this post pandemic era we're in, where, you know, a few years ago, like five years ago, everyone was trying to emulate your Chipotle model where you go up and you build your own thing. Now you have Chipotle, Panera, all these people trying to emulate the QSR model and find drive through mm-hmm. locations. So you have a bunch of new players in the game sourcing these locations that traditionally there's only a few people who can operate in. And so the supply remains consistent while the demand grows and it makes it much more difficult. So for a city to come in and take one away, be, yeah. but I mean, that's California for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not certainly not the only community out in in in, in the country that that no. uh, has issues with drive-throughs. I've never seen anything like the idea that they might declare one a public nuisance and, and stuff yeah. like that. But you know, I'm, you bring, sure, I'm sure it was really busy. <laughs> yeah, but you bring up the an, an interesting point on on the on on the demand for drive-through sites. And the thing yeah. is, is like your experience during the pandemic is nothing even close to unique. It's just really, I mean, the drive-through is sort of a pandemic hero, probably settles in. I mean, you know, you expect it to go back to some semblance of normal post-pandemic, but, you know, uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we're probably you know, seeing a future in which drive-through sales are going to be 80 to 85% of, of a typical fast food restaurant sales, and then everybody wants a drive-through. Everybody yeah. wants Applebee's for crying out loud 
is looking at building a drive-through unit. I mean, it's just yeah. insane the the amount of demand for this sort of thing. And that has to be driving up costs all over the place. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, from a on a positive side, our existing real estate values have gone up exponentially. On a negative side, from an expansion point, it makes it much more difficult to source and build with. Our, our AUVs are great, but if if cost to build go up past a one to one ratio, it doesn't make any sense, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a, it's an interesting world we're living in right now, and there's always the threat of another lockdown, regardless of where we're at today. And so, all these other brands are scrambling, and how can we keep our businesses open? And that seems to be drive through. Mm-hmm. So after a couple of really good years, what do you, what do you do to make sure that you maintain that that level of sales? I mean, it seems that the probably from that that maybe the pressure on you would be to to sort of maintain that momentum once some of the you know once things sort of return to yeah. normal. How do you do that? Yeah. So this year, our focus isn't necessarily to drive sales increases. It's mm-hmm. been such a chaotic couple of years that we decided if we can maintain our sales over 2021, then we're ecstatic. So we're working on right now promotions that focus more on operational efficiencies to give our franchisees and crew members a little breather. Um, We want to make sure that they're not burnt out. And so our focus this year is to just get everyone to just take a breath, relax, and maintain at an existing level. And then next year, we'll come back in with new equipment, new promotions, new things that we think can drive the business higher. so for, for this year, it's just a matter of working with our franchise community and the labor issues they're having, as well as the fluctuating, <laughs> fluctuating distribution issues and commodities markets, and uh, just trying to maintain a level because it did hit this crazy swoosh, you know, like Nike symbol trajectory yeah. or the hockey stick line, as they call it. Um, and so we're trying to just give them a breath, reset, and then reattack next year. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't become uh, the CEO of uh, the company during an easy time, huh? No, no, it was definitely a trial by fire back then. Especially the last two years of my uh, position as president and COO was just figure it out. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody knew what was going on. It was day by day. I remember the first time we got notice that somebody came down with COVID in our restaurant Mm. and it was all hands on deck contacting PR agencies seeing, okay, do we need to shut down and call in a sanitizing service? Does the restaurant need to be closed for two weeks? And then it was lockdowns are coming and mandates and I had to close my office. And then I was like, okay, what do we do? What regulations, how can we source masks? How we're everyone's out of sanitizer, right? Slowly it started to come back, but it was definitely a, a steep learning curve during those times, you know, and that goes for everybody. It's not just me, but it was, uh, looking back on it, it was exciting at the time. It was terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I guess if it was easy, everybody would do it, sir. This was fantastic. Really appreciate you joining me this week on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which was edited, as always, by Kimmy Kazmarek, artwork by Nico Hines. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You may also find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your fancy listening shows. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening. <music>